There's one key factor securing American economic prosperity and military superiority. It's not oil. It's not even weapons. It's chips. Chips power everything from our military machinery to our smartphones that are glued to our hands. Until recently, the US had dominance in crafting the fastest chips in the world. But countries like Taiwan, and more importantly, China, are catching up fast. This unfolding race will determine our future. And it's been thoroughly chronicled by today's exceptionally interesting guest, Chris Miller, in his book aptly titled Chip War. Chris is a professor of international history with a focus on the Cold War. He's devoted much of his life to this study. Let's get into it. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Everybody out there, welcome to a very, very special episode of the Into the Impossible podcast requested by my brother-in-law because he loves this book uh, by Chris Miller called Chip War. So we're going to go to war today. We're going to talk about this wonderful, really incredible runaway bestseller of 2023 by Chris Miller. Or maybe it came out in 2022. Did it come out in 22 or 23? That's right. Late 2022. Late 2022. Okay. It's been a year of just uh, accolades and uh, encomia from all over the world. And we're going to get into deep, deep dive into the technology, into the physics. You know, Chris, you, I might be the first person that you've ever talked to on a podcast that's actually done lithography, that's made actual semiconductor and superconduct. These are superconducting detectors we used in my bicep experiment. This is a lithograph uh, proto, proto circuit for an antenna that we used in the Polar Bear 2 experiment which is ongoing in the Atacama Desert. We're going to talk about diffraction, lithography, some of the cool stuff being done here in San Diego and in Europe. But first, we're going to do what you're never, ever, under any circumstance, supposed to do, which is to judge a book by its cover, especially one as delightful as this. Now, we're going to hold up a fake book. I'm going to hold up my, my iPhone that has, you know, I listened to the book on audiobook form. Chris, tell us, what was the genesis, the origin? of the wonderful cover and the title, especially the subtitle of your fabulous new book. The title Chip War uh, emerged, actually, it wasn't my my first uh, choice for title. It emerged after discussions with my editor, who was uh, brilliant, I think, at, at encapsulating a book's argument. I was initially actually planning to call the book The Switch, with a reference to transistors turning circuits on and off. But uh, my editor said, no, that, that doesn't get the thesis of the book. And the thesis is about the contest for controlling uh, this technology. And, and indeed, one of the, the themes that emerged from the research was the role of the defense industrial base in pushing forward semiconductor technology. And so that's how we settled on uh, chip war, uh, referencing the, the military origins, but also the battle between uh, companies and countries uh, for this technology. And so the cover, at least the, the U.S. cover, the international editions all have different covers, uh, but the U.S. cover has a, an American flag juxtaposed next to a semiconductor, which uh, speaks to the fact that this is technology that everyone uses, but it's technology that governments have played a major role in shaping uh, its development. And the uh, international copy uh, that I saw is uh, of, a, of a globe or a map or something like that? That's right. Yeah, it's a, a picture of a globe with kind of circuitry uh, carved into it. Yes. And this was uh, very reminiscent. That's why I brought my own circuit board here. Uh, reminiscent of, uh, of what we do in the laboratory and, and what we, how we use these sensors. And I want to take us back to maybe the OG of, of all things, uh, digital switches, as you mentioned, transistors. Uh, and that is, of course, uh, none other than Gordon Moore, uh, who passed away not too long ago. 
uh, uh, sadly, because he was an incredible supporter, not just of applied science, but of basic science, pure research. I want to get into that with you. But I want to get your reaction to this quote from Gordon Moore. He said, allegedly, he said, if the automobile industry had set a pace similar to that of the semiconductor industry, a Rolls Royce would get a half a million miles per gallon and it would be cheaper to throw it away than to park it. Is that still true, Chris? Are we still are we still progressing at a rate anticipated by Moore's law, even if the exponent has changed or the or the base period has changed? Pretty much. There's there's different ways you can you can def, uh, define and assess Moore's law, but the basic intuition that we're getting dramatically more computing power every couple of years at dramatically reduced cost holds true, which is why you can go on Amazon and buy a thumb drive with a billion transistors. Uh, for not that much money. And that would have been unthinkable, not just 50 years ago, but 30 years ago, 20 years ago, that was a mind-bogglingly large number. And that still basically holds, uh, which is why everyone is racing to get their hands on the next generation NVIDIA chips to train bigger and bigger AI systems is because the next generation is better and better at a really extraordinary rate. And I think if you think about the rest of the economy, the rest of society, the rest of technology, nothing else comes close to that sustained rate of improvement over time. The only thing that really compares is is the, the cost and speed of uh, gene sequencing, which has fallen really dramatically the past couple of decades. But Moore's law has been in operation now for over half a century, and it's really unparalleled in uh, all of human history. Hey, fellow wanderers into the impossible. I hope this deep dive into the semiconductor world is as fascinating to you as it was to me. But there's an important conversation to be had that goes deep beyond this, and I want you to be a part of it. So please do me the favor of subscribing to the channel and or following it if you're listening on audio platforms. And for extra credit homework, give me a thumbs up, review, like, comment, share it really helps with the algorithm that these computer chips are running in the background to really boost our mission to connect millions of minds around the world of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And by doing so, you'll help me help you get the greatest possible guest on Into the Impossible. Now back to the episode with Chris. Yeah, and the um, the connection between gene sequencing and also the, uh, the microchip and semiconductor revolution uh, is really highlighted as well, especially here in San Diego. We have Illumina. And I just interviewed uh, Craig Bentner, uh, who is a venter, who's the uh, uh, one of the, I, I would say, I say he did sequence the human genome, his team did it, and kind of shared the credit with uh, Francis Collins and their team at NIH. But uh, we had a raucous interview live in person here, and, and he talked about, you know, the foundational assets of having computing power, you know, that was really unrivaled, and how that dominate, allowed them to dominate. I want to take us to the kind of mythology, and some of it mentioned in the book. And I, I didn't know if you, I don't know if you know this, but uh, here in San Diego, we have one of the founding fathers of the transistor revolution. In fact, the Nobel Prize winner uh, who uh, co- you know shared the Nobel Prize for the invention of the transistor. We, we don't have his body, but we apparently have some of his, um, I'll say genetic material here in what's called the Genius Factory or perhaps the Repository for Germinal Choice, also known as the Nobel Prize Sperm Bank. And uh, Shockley is a character in this book, obviously. Uh, talk about him. I, I find him very fascinating. Uh, of course, he was a genius uh, inventor, uh, although he may not have been as bright. Allegedly, he, he kind of failed this determined study of, uh, of IQ uh, by Nobel laureates. But, but uh, tell me about Shockley and his role and this mythology that we have of putting these you know, kind of contributors to the technology revolution. 
up on a pedestal, whether financially or intellectually. Well, Shakti certainly was an important figure in the development of some of the the theory as well as some of the initial inventions that led to the first transistor and then the ability to produce them at larger scale. Uh, but he's also, I think, a great case study in how if people are focused on getting attention and getting taking credit for inventions, uh, they can write the history in a way uh, that gives them an outsized role. And so he was actually one of three scientists that devised the first transistor um, at Bell Labs. Uh, he actually didn't play the major role in devising it. He played the major role in theorizing it. But there's a very famous photo that was taken uh, right when the first transistor was being announced. And he he put himself at the center of the photo looking through the microscope and had his two colleagues standing behind him as though they were his lab uh, aides. And, and so he's gotten the lion's share of the credit for the the invention. But, you know, I think what's interesting about Shockley is that although the, the history is generally written with him at the center, in fact, he was a, a failed business person. He tried to mass produce transistors, couldn't do it. Uh, and it was people like Gordon Moore who turned the transistor from an interesting science experiment into a mass market product. And so if you want to look at the technology trend, it's it's actually less about the the scientists who invented it and more about the person, uh, the people who learned how to mass produce them. Here at UC San Diego, we had uh, two graduates of our a university uh, that was uh, that went on to found an incredible business here called Symer, and that's uh, Robert Aikens and Richard Sandstrom. Um, talk about, and now they're part of a- ASML, and you talk a lot about ASML in the book and and how crucial and really monopolistic uh, and hopefully benevolently monopolistically so. Talk about a- M- AMSL and what is so fascinating to you as a as a you know not not a physicist but um but as as a writer as a as a technologist talk about what fascinates you so much about their the technology used in this exquisite production of semiconductors that drive the modern world ASML is, is the company that makes the tools that make chips or makes some of the tools that you need to make a, a cutting edge uh, chip and so its job is is to produce these machines that can manipulate materials at almost the atomic level uh, do so at a cost and at volume uh, that is financially viable. That's actually the, the hard part. The hard part is not the physics. Well, it's very, very, very hard. Hard part is doing the physics uh, in a way that is viable to mass production. And so ASML um, was has been involved in the lithography industry for now around half a century. Uh, but in the early 1990s, when this new type of lithography called EUV, extreme ultraviolet, was being invented, ASML was the only company willing to bet that you could commercialize this technology and turn it into a, a mass production product. And they spent three decades, billions of dollars, uh, took on huge financial and technical risk uh, to produce these machines. And today, they're the most complex machines humans have ever made. They've got inside of them the flattest mirrors uh, ever made, one of the strongest lasers ever deployed in a commercial device, uh, and an explosion happening inside of the, the chamber that Symer developed. That at a temperature of uh, 40 or 50 times the temperature of the surface of the sun. And this isn't a one-off. This is a machine that works 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and it has to work because each one of them costs $150 million a piece. So it's an extraordinary combination of, on the one hand, physics and engineering. On the other hand, making it match the, the business case that's necessary to produce them by the by the dozens and eventually by the hundreds. And talk about the the challenges of scaling up. I mean, you, you talk about the feature size uh, on these on these exquisitely manufactured devices. Uh, you know, this this one here you could do in a uh, literally in a uh, with a, with optical light and then so forth. You don't need extreme ultraviolet. 
uh, advanced uh, diffraction gratings and and so forth. But talk about limitations. Uh, the size scale is approaching, you know, fractions of a coronavirus. You know, for scale, I, I love that. That's become a, a figure of scale nowadays. Uh, tell me, wh- what are some of the challenges of going beyond these already literally microscopic and beyond microscopic levels? You know, I think one of the things that surprised me was that to make smaller and smaller devices, and and as you say that. The transistors in the chips on our phones and in PCs are now virus-sized. You need bigger and bigger machines and bigger and bigger and more complex supply chains. So when the chip industry was founded, uh, companies would do everything themselves. They'd make their own uh, production machines. They'd refine their own chemicals. They'd produce their own silicon wafers. They'd try to do it all. Whereas today, every step is so mind-bogglingly complex and the level of Uh, specificity and purification and precision is so high that there's not a single company that can do anything uh, on their own. And so the the number of firms, the number of countries involved in making a chip inside your smartphone uh, now measures uh, uh, vastly larger than it would have in the past. And just the machines themselves take a cutting edge lithography machine. They require multiple airplanes to move because they're so large. And then the next generation lithography machine that will make even smaller circuitry will be substantially larger. Because to make smaller and smaller devices, you need bigger and bigger machines. And a quote that I also want to get your reaction to uh, goes like this. What Gordon giveth, Bill taketh away. That refers to uh, Gordon Moore, Gordon Moore's, uh, Moore's Law, but also Bill Gates with Bill being a proxy for the software, you know, the kind of voracious appetite that software has to chew up all these computing resources. In fact, we use um, in our uh, cosmic uh, data analysis, we use Department of Energy machines that are, you know, benchmark top five in the world or, or maybe even better. They're used primarily for nuclear fusion uh, simulations and research in nuclear weapons, but they give us some spare cycles. We found that, at least I found and in, informally in, in talking to my colleagues, uh, Moore's law might keep increasing, but what I really care about is how many papers you know come out of it, right? I don't really care how many flops are done. I want to know how did you distill this, you know, this uh, technology into floating point operations that then do analysis on uh, the distribution of dark matter in the universe, for example. That kind of benchmark, you know, the ultimate what, what I do is pretty, is to convert money, you know, into papers. You know, some funding agency gives me a grant. Uh, and we work and we get a paper. Maybe we get 10 papers out for every $10 million. It's about a million dollars a paper. Anyway, long-winded way of asking you, is it not true that the better the hardware gets, the software developers take advantage of it or maybe don't and don't optimize? And so therefore, Moore's Law, effect, the effective Moore's Law for output, which is what you care about, scientific discovery, gene uh, de- uh, discovery, all sorts of protein folding, it's actually saturating and not growing anywhere near the power law exponent that Moore's Law is. So Talk about that, the, the bill taking away from what Gordon gave us. Well, you know, I think it's, it's certainly true that we've got an almost limitless appetite for compute. Uh, and the more compute we get, the less efficient we have to be with it. The less compute costs, the more incentive we have to be inefficient because we can spend our time on other things. And so, so it's absolutely right that uh, in times when Moore's Law is improving at a rapid pace, uh, software engineers try less hard to be efficient. I would not agree with the thesis that we're getting less bang for our buck out of Moore's Law. I think you know, in certain spheres, you can make that argument. But I guess when I look at the explosion of uh, interest in applications of AI over just the past couple of years, it seems to me that there's a lot of pretty fantastic products coming down the pipeline. 
And to me, that that's a sign that we're we're finding new applications for Moore's law. And it's it's only because of Moore's law that you're able to train big AI systems because they're just so data intensive and therefore just so compute intensive uh, to train. And so there's a big debate constantly underway in the chip industry. Is, is Moore's law finally dying? Um, what does it mean? How would you define that? But I guess when I look across the, the use cases for compute, which today the biggest growth uh, driver is uh, is AI and autonomous systems. Uh, it seems to me there's a whole lot of excitement for the next generation of, of products and concepts that are being developed. Yeah, I think that certainly is true. And I guess, you know, the next question is, uh, you know, is the next war, n- maybe not a chip war, but a qubit war. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Are, are, are we going to witness, you know, kind of uh, really truly exponential growth, even of the exponent in Moore's law, not just that it's exponential, but it's increasing at an exponential rate. Will quantum computing come to the rescue? I think it's hard to talk about quantum computing with certainty because the industry doesn't exist yet. We've got companies that are in the very, very early stages of trying to create products. And so we're sort of like in the position of being in 1952, a half a decade after the first transistor was developed and trying to project forward uh, when the iPhone would be created. We just don't even know, nor can we really conceptualize what the iPhone of quantum computing will be half a century in the future. So, so we're, we're speculating pretty blindly here. I think what you can say though is that if you look at the history of classical computing, what you find is that even the really revolutionary changes, they they happened incrementally. And so it was a decade bef- between the first uh, invention of the transistor and the integrated circuit, another decade between then and when big mainframe computers became standard in large corporations, another decade after that before the pocket calculator, which was the first real consumer product using integrated circuits, was invented. Another decade after that for the PC, decade later for the iPhone. And so it was actually a very long process by which classical computing was applied to all different facets of our economy and our society. And so I, I, I think that quantum computing will be similar. It's going to take a long time to sort out once we've got the technology sorted, what's the economic use case? What's the business use case? And how does that disseminate uh, across society? And when we look at, you know, kind of the historical parallels, what happened, as you said, you know, 70 years ago now and fast forward to today, we see parallels playing out. Whereas the U.S. was engaged in a Cold War with the Soviet Union, you make the case that a decisive element of our victory, uh, if you can call it that, was our preeminence in, uh, in semiconductor manufacture and industrialization. Is that all attributable to you know capitalism versus communism? Uh, in other words, that there was such a profit incentive uh, that you know the the capitalists were destined to win. And uh, if so, does that not bode well? And I'm not you know obviously I'm American, so I'm going to take America's side, America first in this instance. So does that bode well for China versus America? Because China is still a communist country. What what are your thoughts there? How decisive was communism versus capitalism? Are there historical rhyming, you know, kind of analogies with what we see with China? Yeah, you know, I think you want to drill it down to its basics. That's basically accurate. Um, It's true that the government played a major role in funding the first inventions that set up the chip industry. The first chips that were produced were basically bought by NASA or the Pentagon. But if you ask, why was it that these initial inventions, which were purchased in very small quantities, but hundreds and thousands, turned into an industry that uh, now sells uh, millions and millions of units each year? The answer is because there was a huge consumer market and a huge corporate market that was opened. And so it's been 
although it's been the government that has funded the initial invention, it's been the civilian market that has funded the expansion and has made it possible to lay down the capital investments that uh, make it realistic for firms to keep investing every single year in new process technologies and uh, new machines, new chemicals. That's something that the communist world during the Cold War didn't have. They, they had the military market. They had lots of spending there. They had the best scientists in the Soviet Union who were basically conscripted into the uh, chip industry. Uh, but they had a tiny market. And as a result, they couldn't scale. And scaling is everything. And I think that's basically the same dilemma China finds itself in today. China's trying to build a self-sufficient chip industry because it doesn't want to rely on the United States and Taiwan and Japan for understandable reasons. The problem is that self-sufficiency means you don't have scale. China's a big country, but it's only 20% of world GDP, whereas the rest of the chip industry is selling to 80% of world GDP. And if you're on the wrong side of that equation, it's just very, very hard to keep up. I never like it when an author, you know, I've been in, in your in your shoes uh, being interviewed, you know, podcast host asks you, can you summarize the entire book, you know, so that people don't have to buy it or even listen to the audio book <laughs> or, or even buy the short form. No, no, no. I am not short form. I refuse to do that. But uh, TSMC plays a big role in the book. And I want to see if you can maybe approach it from, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm being naive. But my first, you know, uh, kind of stance at this is that we have about 200 top universities in the, in the in the world, and many of them are in the United States. I mean, there's thousands of great universities, but uh, 200 or so have eminent, you know, preeminent, not just photolithography, um, you know, fabrication facilities, but they also have the greatest scientists in the world, in my opinion. My colleagues are, you know, extremely brilliant. Why is it so hard to have, you know, to offshore TSMC and make it, you know, Arizona semiconductor, you know, and it seemed to be to de-risk de a lot of the, you know, kind of uh, existential threats that the chip universe is being threatened by with a potential conflict between China and the US. Um, why not take, you know, just make a Manhattan Project like effort and onshore into, um, you know, maybe NATO, I don't know, you can say whatever you like, but why not? Why is it so hard? It, it, you know, when, when, when my dean gets asked for, you know, $12 million startup, uh, you know, to fund a new lithography um, machine and facility here, clean room class, you know, 300 clean room, they don't balk at it. So why is it so hard? Um, especially since Symer is located in America. Well, it all goes back to the question of scale, really. Uh, so TSMC is the world's largest chip maker. Because it's the world's largest, it has lower unit costs because it can drive down the cost of its purchases of wafers and purchase of chemicals. But more importantly than that, it gets economies of learning because it learns for each wafer it fabricates. And so it learns more and has more chances to learn than any competitor. And so as a result, it's both uh, got uh, really impressive economics, but it's also got the best technology uh, of any other company producing processor chips. And it's been in that position for some time. And what that means... That is that all of the world's chip designers want to work with it. And so it's got an ecosystem that's been built up around it, whereby all of the companies that per, that design chips want to work with TSMC because it's got the best cost and best technology. All of the companies that make the machine tools realize that TSMC will be their biggest customer since it's got the scale. All the companies that design the software that's used to design chips need to make sure their software lines up with TSMC's practices. And so it's become the platform so to speak, of the entire chip industry. Uh, it's like the app store. You know, a a Apple's got iOS and everyone designs their apps to fit in those boxes. And that's basically what TSMC is. And because it's got this immense scale, if you design a product that doesn't fit with TSMC, you miss your biggest customer. And what that means is that if you want to replicate TSMC, you've got to replicate the scale. And the scale is very, very expensive to replicate. So TSMC is going to spend this year between 30 and $40 billion dollars uh, building new chip making facilities. 
that's roughly as much as the U.S. Chips Act is going to spend over the next five years. So the U.S. government wants to build a chip industry. It's going to spend uh, in five years what TSMC spends every single year. And that just shows the level of difficulty in trying to build up that scale outside of TSMC. And TSMC hasn't been investing that much for just one year. It's been investing huge sums for the past 30 years, which is why it's got more capacity to produce not only the most cutting edge ships, but also less cutting edge ships than anyone else. So, you know, you you convinced me in the book that that the you know advantage in the US, even from its earliest days and probably still until now, as I say, with nuclear weapons research being conducted on, you know, giant DOE computers, that the advantage was due to military funding. So I mean, uh forty billion, you know, it's it's a lot of money, but it's uh, you know, four percent of the US military budget. Why isn't the US military, you know, viewing this if it is so and I agree with you, of course, strategically. Why isn't there, you know, a 4%, you know, kind of a diversion of military funding into the military, just military chips alone would seem to be uh, a wise investment. Um, so what are your thoughts there? Could, could we see that? Do we need the boogeyman like we had with the Soviet Union or, or is, is China such a such an entity or will we only, you know, kind of leave it up to private companies? It seems like a great risk uh, to our national security. But I think it is. And I think that's that's one of the key reasons why Congress a couple of years ago passed the CHIPS Act, which is intended to revitalize chip making in, in the U.S. The challenge is that although it's true the U.S. military needs uh, cutting edge ships and there's ships in every F-35 fighter, for example, that today can only be made in Taiwan, uh, the volume that the U.S. military buys is small. And it's true that $40 billion is is just a small fraction of the U.S. Uh, defense budget. But you need $40 billion every couple of years because a chipmaking facility is cutting edge for a couple of years and you need another one and another one after that. And so if you're, sitting the, if you're sitting in the Pentagon, you can buy a new aircraft carrier for $10 billion or you can buy half of a chipmaking facility. An aircraft carrier is uh, staying in operation for half a century where a chipmaking facility is cutting edge for just about two years. And so that's the calculus that led the Pentagon actually to decide uh, very deliberately about two decades ago not to produce its own ships anymore. For a long time, they had this own co- this, this confidential fab where they could produce uh, all sorts of chips for the military and the intelligence agencies, but they decided it was just no longer financially viable and it was better to rely on Taiwan and uh, save, those money, save that money to buy other types of equipment. You have a wonderful passage in the book. You talk about chips from Taiwan pr- pr- provide 37% of the world's new computing power each year. Two Korean companies produce 44% of the world's memory chips. The Dutch company ASML that we talked about builds 100% of the world's extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, without which cutting edge chips are simply impossible to make. OPEC's 40% share of world oil production looks unimpressive by comparison. And actually, I think OPEC has even decreased now. I think uh, US is making more oil than even Saudi Arabia now. Talk about the, let's, let's, you know, do it all men love to do secretly, right? Let's do some war gaming in this book. War. G- so let's say Taiwan is attacked by China. I've used these machines about uh, 30% of the time I've tried to use, uh, you know, a, a stepper, a, you know, deep ultraviolet etcher or whatever. It's down for maintenance and there's a tech in there in a bunny suit and and they're working on it. Uh, these things do, you know, just like an F-35, I, I think we had on Hazard Lee, who's a, a stealth fighter pilot, wrote a book uh, about that, uh, uh, you know, uh, fighter pilot. We had him on the show earlier this year. And, uh, you know, he told me that there's about 20 hours of maintenance for every one hour of flight. And, and I don't you know, they're not, you know, maintaining the chips, but, but just all the system. These machines need incredible, loving, tender care. 
Could it even be practical in a war game scenario for China to take out, you know, or take over the island of Taiwan? In about a month, they'd be out of raw materials. The machines would be down, and there's only one sole source. They have to take over the Netherlands too. <laughs> well, I think that's that is is part of the dilemma that if a war were to start, Taiwan's chip fabs would shut down, and they'd be basically impossible to uh, get started up again unless you had the support from the Netherlands and from the U.S. and and from Japan, it's it's the machines, which, as you say, require all sorts of spare parts and expertise that are imported into Taiwan. It's also the chemicals, which largely come from uh, Japan and the U.S. as well, that are uh, uh, ultra precise, uh, hugely difficult to produce and need to be supplied on a regular basis. So if there's a war, Taiwan shuts down. I, the risk for the U.S. is that if you ask yourself who depends more on ships made in Taiwan, is it us or is it China? The answer is very clearly us. It's, you know, who are TSMC's biggest customers? Apple, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, AMD. I haven't listed a Chinese firm yet. They're all US companies, mostly based in California. And so who would suffer more if TSMC were shut down? Well, that's a, that's a really complex and interesting question. If you, if you actually do the economic analysis, you find that China would suffer more because all the iPhones, for example, are largely assembled in China. So in pure GDP terms, China suffers more. But if you ask yourself whose political system is more able to sustain that type of disruption, I worry that the U.S. Uh, is less able to sustain it. And China knows it because China would be looking at the U.S. Everyone in the U.S. would be looking at their 401ks, which are largely invested in the stock of Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, etc. Uh, and they'd be cratering. And so I, I think there's some concern that China might think that although in pure GDP terms, the impact on China is greater. In fact, China might be able, because of its political system, to withstand the disruption, and the U.S. might not. You mentioned NVIDIA. Well, let's talk about them. As I understand it, they're not really manufacturing. You know, they're 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 you know what are the eight thousand whatever they call their their uh, chips. Uh, it's their design, and then they're outsourced and they're made by TSMC, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, and NVIDIA was actually founded uh, right after TSMC was founded. They wouldn't have gotten started up. Uh, except for the fact that their investors knew they could go to TSMC for manufacturing services. So NVIDIA's never manufactured anything. They only design. Uh, they partnered with TSMC from the beginning. Talk about what you see exciting in the AI space. Uh, you mentioned you know autonomous driving and stuff like that before. Um, talk. What, what is most interesting kind of on on the horizon? Not like futuristic, you know, hundred year quantum, you know, Teslas driving around uh, autonomous. Talk about what what excites you in the near term for the chips that you write so uh, so in, intriguingly about. The key trend in AI has been that the most advanced AI systems require vast increases in data every six months. So there's been great empirical work done on the amount of data used to train the cutting edge AI system of each day. And they find that every six or 12 months, there's a doubling of data used in AI training. So faster than Moore's law of growth. And so all of the advances in AI that we've seen have been possible thanks to advances in compute that have made this type of vast training possible. And so if you want to uh, project forward trends in AI, it's, it's been pretty um, uh, pretty clear for the last decade that you can just project forward data training volumes, uh, which means projecting forward compute volumes, and that will give you um, what the next generation AI system will, uh, will basically look like. And so there's a really deep interconnection between the types of chips that NVIDIA makes uh, and the types of uh, advances in AI that we've seen. I think the next question is, you know, we know right now what it takes to train an AI system, high-powered GPUs. But as we begin to deploy AI in all sorts of devices, in cars and phones and 
uh, industrial equipment, you probably need or want different types of chips that are optimized to that specific domain, have the right power to electricity consumption ratio, for example, uh, for different domains. So that's where a lot of focus is right now and figuring out what's the right hardware uh, specification for AI inference in different use cases. And another, you know, kind of interesting um, historical, uh, you know, kind of excursion you go through is is Intel. Obviously, we talked about Gordon Moore and and um, and his contributions uh, early on, and not just technically, technically, but but in terms of uh, his, you know, kind of entry into the zeitgeist, our understanding of power of of you know things that depend on power laws. Uh, of which Moore's Law is just one. Talk about Intel and how they kind of lost. I mean, I remember in the 90s, you know, it was like on your computer, you got a, a you know, from Dell or whatever, a big sticker Intel inside. Now it seems like they're, you know, hopelessly far behind. Are they going to be able to catch up or, you know, are they going to have to pivot into doing some other you know, software services or data storage or something like that? Will they get away or come back to their roots? Well, you know, one of the big problems that Intel has faced is that the, the PC market, which, as you say, used to be a real growth driver, has slowed. Now nobody knows what kind of chips in their PC because it doesn't matter. Our chips are good enough. PCs run. They're not exciting anymore. Uh, and so Intel still dominates that market, but it's just a less exciting market not growing anymore. And then Intel in the data center, which is Intel's other big market, has lost out to companies like NVIDIA. It was behind the curve when it came to AI. And so the most recent data suggests that three out of four dollars spent in data centers past year went to NVIDIA. And Intel and AMD have just been competing for the remainder. So that's that's a real challenge for Intel. They got to turn around. But the second issue is that they fell behind TSMC when it came to manufacturing technology. They, they do both design and manufacturing, and, and they've been lagging TSMC for the past couple of years. Now, it looks like they've got a chance of catching up to TSMC. We'll see if they do, uh, but their aim is to catch up by 2025. This is uh, the 18A chip? 18A, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And right now, they say they're on schedule, and so uh, it may be just as good as what TSMC has. But then they've got to match that manufacturing capacity with designs that uh, people want to buy. And they've, they're right up against both AMD and NVIDIA right now for both PCs and data centers. And it's going to be very tough competition. Another uh, kind of uh, interesting take in the book that I came away with is the importance of uh, of immigration to the all-chip story. Um, obviously, this involves uh, cooperation and, and sometimes competition between different nations, different philosophies. Um, I, I read an article one, uh, recently um, <clears throat> that uh, talked about how uh, much uh, the tightening of curbs on AI exports to China is going to, you know, really impact not only uh, sales and the bottom line for Nvidia, uh, but also like recruiting of talent both in both directions. Maybe um, talk about immigration. Has it been, you know, net good? And and with limitations on H one B visas, many of my students and postdocs and there and so forth have benefited from that, uh, both in China from China and Southeast Asia. Uh, talk about that. How how uh, how is immigration? figure into the chip war. My view is that immigration has been central to U.S. success over the past uh, 75 years. If, if you look at all of the key turning points in the chip industry, you can find immigrants as part of the story. For example, the, the eight engineers who founded Fairchild Semiconductor, which is the kind of first Silicon Valley startup in the chip space, two of them were, were foreign-born. So that's 25% uh, right out the bat. If you look at the success of Intel, uh, it was about Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce, but it was also about Andy Grove, who was the longtime CEO, who was born as Andras Grove when uh, he was born in Budapest before moving to uh, New York as a, 
as a refugee. And, and the same is true today. Look at Jensen Huang, CEO of NVIDIA, uh, born in Taiwan before growing up uh, in Kentucky. Uh, and so I think there's there's a, a very strong pattern. It's, it's basically as strong a correlation as we got with Moore's Law uh, when it comes to Im- immigrants playing a huge role in the chip industry. And it really is a, a challenging issue today because as you say, as, as the US tries to split the chip world into a China-focused world and a rest of the world uh, sphere, uh, it's forcing people to choose sides. And so there's actually been regulations the US has passed that say neither US citizens nor green card holders can work with certain Chinese firms. And there's been reports that uh, certain green card holders have decided to give up the green card to keep working with these banned firms. And so it has had a direct impact. But I think in the long run, the, the US has still got a pretty strong position uh, vis-a-vis China. If you look at the, the net immigration flows, there's a whole lot of people coming from China to the US and a much smaller number going from the US or other countries uh, to China. Um, but as you say, uh, the complexity and the small numbers of H-1Bs make it more difficult than it probably should be. Speaking of China, uh, famed kind of geopolitical strategist Peter Zihan, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, he's, he's sort of a America... I wouldn't say America bull, but he he basically is claiming that you know China is on the verge of collapse. Their demographics are horrible. I've you know pointed out I, I had on uh, Mo Gadot, who worked at at Google X for a long time and and uh, is is a great writer and thinker. And we talked about you know how e- even even if it's uh, true that they're you know going to lose uh, net net replacement of three hundred million people, they're still going to have over a billion people you know uh, for the next. 50, 60 years, and there's no chance of America catching up. Perhaps India already surpasses them. But uh, what do you make of Zihan's kind of analysis that you know China's essentially? You've written you know several books on the USSR and their their collapse and and Putin and, and Gorbachev. Do you see any parallels? Are they imminently about to collapse, as as Peter might claim, or or do you feel uh, actually where that may be you know a psyop that yeah they're perpetrating to make us underestimate how powerful they may actually be. If you look at the history of authoritarian systems like China's, what you find is that they always look pretty strong until the moment before they collapse. And it's very, very hard to predict the moment a brittle system just pops apart. And so when I look at China right now, things look pretty stable. But I think we've got to uh, recognize that the Soviet Union looked pretty stable in 1989, too. And then two years later, it was gone. Now, I don't think that's a prediction. I wouldn't bet on that if I were uh, betting on China's future. But I, I do think Peter's right to say that China's got a lot of real challenges, the demographics, the economics, the uh, confrontation, not just with the US, but with all of its key trading partners, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, India. Uh, if, if you were to you know, arrive from Mars and say, which country would you rather be? I don't think you'd pick China. And we are uh, just to pivot back to some of the personalities in the book. So uh, talk about Jensen Huang. He's sort of this iconoclastic figure or shows up at a in a you know biker jacket has a huge tattoo on his uh, on his body, kind of like a like a an Elvis uh, kind of cult like guru following. How much of that is to sort of uh, uh, is to blame for their success, maybe? And then uh, do you do you believe that you know kind of this this cult of personality is warranted? I mean, is he that a visionary? I haven't researched beyond what you provided in the book as a description, which I think is wonderful. But I talk about him as a person, as a leader. As a visionary, where where do you see how he fits in in the in the grand story um, of of chips, but also of innovators in the kind of Silicon Valley uh, tradition? You know what I, I think he deserves all of the credit uh, he's given. If if you look at what Nvidia has done, it is a, a series of extraordinary bets that looked wild and reckless uh, when the, when they were made and turned out uh, to be absolutely central to advances in computing. When Nvidia was founded, and Jensen was one of the three co-founders. 
they co-founded it in a Denny's in San Jose. So it's like a, this classic kind of Silicon Valley startup uh, story. They, their, their only product was to produce graphics chips for computers. And they did that pretty successfully for 15 years. And then they heard uh, in the early 2000s stories of PhD students at Stanford and Berkeley and elsewhere using their chips for machine learning and AI. And they realized that basically the same designs that would, were good for graphics were also good for training AI systems. And so they began pouring irresponsibly large sums of money into building out a software ecosystem uh, around the idea of using their graphics chips for AI. At the time, they were criticized uh, for being hugely wasteful, betting on an industry that didn't exist. Wall Street was furious at all the money they were spending. And until last year, it looked like it might not pan out. Uh, but over the past 12 months, as we've uh, just seen what uh, large language models in particular can do and realize that basically all of them are trained on NVIDIA's ships, uh, every tech company in the world has been scrambling to get their hands on products that NVIDIA created. And I think Jensen deserves a whole lot of credit for seeing that trend nearly two decades in advance of everyone else. And the important part is he not only saw the trend, he was able to stick with it, spend a whole lot of money building it up when most people said it was a crazy idea. Hey, friends. It's me back again with a request for you to win a chunk, not of a silicon chip, but of a meteorite, a real 4.3 billion year old fragment of the early solar system. And all you have to be entered to win each month is join my mailing list at briankeating.com list. When you do so, you'll be entered to win one of these chunks of space schmutz, the 4 billion year old chunk of our solar system. Maybe not as high tech as those silicon chips that we've been talking about today with Chris Miller, but Nevertheless, unique, interesting, and fascinating. I'll send you information about meteor showers and all sorts of other goodies and how you can watch them. So join my mission. And if you have a .edu email address, you'll be automatically entered to win and you'll automatically receive a chunk of space dust. Now back to the episode. But before you forget, visit briankeating.com slash list to join my mailing list. You'll receive the hottest news from around the STEM universe once each week on Mondays. Thanks. Back to the episode. I want to finish up with a couple of questions, both in some way related to cryptocurrency to Bitcoin. It's been rumored that you know something like half the compute, you know, power on Earth is dedicated to, uh, is dedicated to uh, Bitcoin mining uh, by itself, and then there's you know whatever twenty thousand other alternative coins and and networks and so forth. I had on Michael Saylor, extremely bullish about it, and you know his basic thesis is that you know Bitcoin is ener- stored energy. And that's the um, that's the irreducible kind of undilutable, uh, perfect form of money, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not getting into the B- Bitcoin thesis, although if you have any hot tips for our audience, let us know, Chris. But uh, uh, but in uh, in reality, the staggering amount, if it's true that half the world's energy is basically <laughs> dedicated computer compute power, and something like the equivalent of uh, uh, you know all the U.S. nuclear powered carrier battle groups. Uh, worth of worth of energy is devoted to Bitcoin mining, uh, which is a significant fraction. Talk about you know the the prospects for uh, for you know savings or or maybe the picks and shovel la- layer, uh, uh, maybe the energy side of of compute uh, because you know it costs energy to compute even to erase a bit you know in uh, at a fundamental physics of information level costs energy and so and it contributes to waste heat and waste energy which contributes to you know, the uh, use of fossil fuels primarily. So talk about how do we integrate energy into it? How should we think about things like cryptocurrencies and their, and their, you know, I wouldn't say monopoly, but large demand on compute power and energy requirements? Well, it's absolutely right that this is a, a key challenge the industry faces and really has faced from the beginning. If, if you look at why 
the first decision was made to move from computers based on discrete transistors to computers based on integrated circuits, lower power consumption was a key driver. And so the industry has been driven forward by its ability to produce more power efficient compute. Uh, that's been a key demand from customers from the earliest days. And so if you ask yourself, why is it that every year smartphone companies pay a lot of money to TSMC to give them a better smartphone chip? It's because the power to compute ratio uh, tends to get better on a pretty regular basis. And there's trade-offs, more power versus more performance and uh, the, the, the efficiency laws that dictate that power consumption should get better over time have been performing much less well in recent decades than they did in the early stages. Uh, but there's a huge focus underway right now in finding um, finding ways to make it all more efficient. Because as you say, uh, it, it is fundamentally uh, a key input to compute. And if our demand for compute is basically infinite, I think it basically is, our supply of power is not. <laughs> and so we've got to find ways to keep economizing on, on, on electricity usage. Yeah, my favorite you know, kind of thing to think about quantum computers is that they're extremely good at solving, you know, what's called the Grangian for a quantum computing system. <laughs> they're very good solipsistically at looking at the uh, underlying quantum mechanical equations, and those are governed by things called Lagrangians. And and they're, they're very good at, at finding these minimal energy surfaces and doing path integrals and all these things that Feynman talked about way back when. But they're not, you know, yet found, as you said, scalability of consumer, you know, uh, viable consumer. Um, option, et cetera. But my favorite, you know, kind of future optimistic, you know, Pollyannish view is that, yeah, quantum computers are going to figure out a way to get uh, high TC superconductivity, which would then reduce the energy draw on compute and almost every other thing that we depend on for our modern technological world. Well, Chris, this has been a phenomenal interview. I thank you for your time. I can't uh, resist asking you one final question. I usually ask when I'm speaking with a Nobel Prize winner, so that shows you the esteem I have for you. Um, this podcast is called Into the Impossible, and it derives its name from Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who said the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to transcend them and go into the impossible. You're a professor. You've written best-selling books, You know, one of the uh, FT's finalists, best, best book of the year. Um, give me uh, 20 seconds of advice. You, you have 20 seconds with your 20-year-old version of yourself. Uh, what do you tell him? What do you tell him to give him the confidence to do as you've done to go into the impossible? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a hard question for historians to ask because our, our job is to look at things that have already been done. So we already know that, know that they're possible. I think if there's one thing that I, I guess I've learned, it, it's about the, the need to try to connect different disciplines together. I mean, I, when I started, I had no knowledge of electrical engineering or physics or material science or anything, uh, just a background in economic history. But it turns out that just applying that background to an industry like semiconductors can produce a lot of uh, pretty extraordinary stories and unlock an, a new way of seeing uh, technology. And so that, that I think, is, is uh, what I hope made the book pretty interesting. And uh, if there's a lesson that I, that I drew from the research, that's it. Uh, I can't resist asking uh, one, one final question. It's prompted by Richard Feynman, who is in some ways a founder of nanotechnology, a famous, famous paper. You probably read it called Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And he starts off that... Uh, he says, but I, ex I imagine experimental physicists must often look with envy at a man like Hammerlin Omnes, who discovered a field like low temperature superconductivity, which seems to be bottomless, in which one can go down and down and down. Such a man is then the leader and has some temporary monopoly on a scientific adventure. I see a lot of that in this book. It's told so wonderfully. And if I could close with one last question to you, again, inspired by Sir Arthur C. Clarke, the namesake generator of this podcast, after all. And uh, he said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 
And I like to think Feynman answered that question once. He said, what, what statement contains the most information about the physical universe in the fewest words? And he said, basically, the atomic hypothesis, that everything's made of little atoms whirling around and, uh, and bonding and combining together. What do you see as the most magical form of technology? Is it the semiconductor chip? Is there something else that we didn't get to discuss? What form of technology is most akin to magic, in your opinion? We talked a bit about the the ASML lithography machines that uh, that convert tiny balls of tin into light at just the right wavelength, thirteen point five nanometers, to bounce off the flattest mirrors in the world and etch tiny circuits on on the chip inside of your iPhone. To to me, understanding how that machine worked and then understanding how every day of my life I relied on the chips that it produced that that was really a, a magical discovery. Uh, and it's still sort of a a shock that machines like that work on a, on a regular basis. Absolutely. Well, Chris, uh, where can people find you and uh, learn more about your work and your other books? Fantastic. Well, my, my website is ChristopherMiller.net. Chris, thank you so much for your valuable time. I uh, enjoyed it very much. I hope we can speak again in the future, maybe meet up someday. Great. Thank you, Brad.